News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The chief of defense staff in Canada's military before being sidelined because he was accused of misconduct. But the investigation is now finished and there won't be any charges. But Admiral Art McDonald says he will be returning to work. And now it's become a political issue and not just a military one. For more on this, we're joined by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. Now, what was the government's reaction to that statement from um, Art McDonald's lawyers? Well, they're saying officially on the record that right now he remains on leave while they essentially figure out the next steps and review the file. In the military, there's not just the potential for criminal charges. There's also the potential for an administrative review or administrative action. Something that was actually established under General Vance when he felt that the military justice system was often failing uh, and perhaps not laying a criminal charge, but that he still wanted to be able to take action. So whether or not the Admiral will face any kind of an administrative review or administrative action remains to be seen. Uh, but I can tell you that my sources are telling me the letter and statement from Admiral McDonald yesterday saying that he was essentially planning to take his role back up came as a surprise to senior political and military people in this government. And what does that tell us? What do you think that means then? You know, I think it means a few things talking to people. Number one, one of the comments, um, and Minister Sajjan alluded to this yesterday, but was said to me a little more clearly on background uh, by senior sources was that, yes, there was no criminal charge, but there is a difference in the bar between not being charged and having the moral authority to lead the Canadian armed forces. Uh, so that was not the criteria the government's necessarily looking for. Everything that I'm hearing from sources is that it's very unlikely the government would bring him back. And I think an important thing to note for your listeners is, you know, it's not actually up to Admiral McDonald. This is one of these positions, the Chief of the Defence Staff, that is decided purely by the Prime Minister of Canada. He can appoint whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Uh, so ultimately, this decision will in fact be up to Mr. Trudeau. Right. So that statement then from the Admiral's lawyers, is that almost like a direct challenge to them? Uh, some folks I was talking to think it may be a legal maneuver, mm. um, and it'll be interesting to see where where this goes, because, of course, you can continue to pay someone or bring them back, uh, but there's technically only one four-star position, as it were, four-leaf position in the Canadian Armed Forces, and that is the Chief of the Defence Staff. While Admiral McDonald could be brought back, that doesn't necessarily mean he has to be returned to command, but it seems like a signal from his camp uh, on what they're expecting. Okay, so then do we have any idea, Mercedes, when a decision might come from the government on this? No idea or sense of exactly when, but what was said to me yesterday was on leave for a while, because hmm. I think they're grappling this. And of course, what's the other thing we're preparing for here in Ottawa? Of course. We think there might be an election that's imminent. I really don't see a scenario where the government wants to announce a new chief uh, or, or wade into this territory during a potential election campaign. That's so true. Oh, and we should remind people here too, what was the Admiral accused of? 
The Admiral was accused of sexual assault by uh, a naval lieutenant. We actually were able to disclose um, the, the detailed natures of those allegations last night um, as provided to us by the, the woman in the case. Um, and she had said that while she was on board the HMCS Montreal in 2010 uh, as a young uh, naval officer, she alleges uh, that there was a party on board. It was a VIP party. There was some heavy drinking going on with dignitaries. Uh, she says that her button popped off of her top uh, and that the ship's captain, who was her commanding officer, was sort of looking for a way to try to shield her from the room in that situation. Um, and she alleges that Admiral McDonald, who was then a task force commander of a multinational task force, grabbed the ship's uh, captain's head and pressed it into her exposed breasts and laughed. Uh, so that is what she alleges. And of course, uh, under the criminal code, that was investigated as sexual assault because it involved allegations of unwanted sexual touching. Okay. And so is that the end of that allegation then? It is so far as on the criminal side. Um, but there's an interesting side note there too, Simi. Uh, the military is supposed to be handing over sexual assault and, and other cases to civilian authorities right now after Supreme Court Justice, former Supreme Court Justice Morris Fish pointed out there's not proper victims protections. This case was never handed over to the RCMP or a civilian prosecutor. It was the military police and it was a military prosecutor who decided not to lay charges. There was huh. questions whether they could actually even try the chief of the defense staff in the military system because you have to be tried by somebody who outranks you who outranks him. No one anybody can think of. Um, and so this would have been a first. And this is raising even more questions about the independence of the military system. Uh, and I'm hearing a lot of anger from the troops, not just victims, from the troops who are saying, you know, they, I think, would have preferred in many cases, uh, not all, but but in some cases for this to have been turned over. Cause so it could have been clear if it was, say, the RCMP and a civilian prosecutor. At this point, the criminal investigation is completely over. No charges recommended. Um, however, that doesn't mean there won't necessarily be an administrative review. And by the way, under military rules, those administrative reviews could include everything up to the removal from the Canadian Armed Forces. All right. Interesting. Mercedes, thank you for that. Thanks for having me, Simi. Mercedes Stevenson, our Global Ottawa Bureau Chief, talking about the situation involving Admiral Art McDonald. But I think, you know what, we're not going to get any kind of resolution to this because, as she pointed out, we widely expect a federal election call to come this weekend. We've heard, you know, maybe Sunday that's going to happen. So none of this is going to get dealt with during that election campaign for sure. So stay tuned. And of course, we'll have complete coverage of everything going on out there in federal politics right here. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's update you now on the situation involving the Canadians detained in China. We are still waiting for word on the sentence for Canadian Michael Kovrig. He has been imprisoned in China for the last three years. A couple of days ago, of course, we heard that a Chinese court sentenced Michael Spavor to 11 years for espionage in a decision that has only further strained relations between the two countries. Meanwhile, here in Vancouver this week, the extradition hearing finally got underway in earnest for Meng Wanzhou. All of these cases, of course, tied together. Now, for the latest update on this, we're joined this morning by James Griffiths, who is the Asia correspondent for the Globe and Mail newspaper. James, thank you for being with us. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. So what is the latest? We thought maybe Michael Kovrig, we'd hear about that this week. Do we know anything about that? Uh, I think we're 
expecting possibly some movement on that next week, but it, it's very unclear. Uh, the the uh, Foreign Minister, Mr. Garneau, was, was saying this week that they haven't had a firm date from the Chinese on when his verdict might come down. Okay, I saw the picture of all of the the diplomats from two dozen countries standing with Canada outside court. What has the reaction been like from the Chinese government on that? Uh, well, the, the Chinese actually today accused Canada and, and other countries, allied nations, of, of ganging up on, on Beijing with, with that little display and, and has accused uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and other uh, Canadian officials of, of interfering in the Chinese judicial process with any criticism they've made of Mr. Spavel's case and of, of generally of the detention of, the, of these two Canadians. Right. So are the regular, like, are Chinese people paying attention to this? Are the regular people doing this or is this mainly a diplomatic spat in China? It, it is being covered uh, fairly extensively uh, in the Chinese press, certainly. Uh, there, there was discussion of it on, on Chinese social media this, this week. So, so people are definitely aware of it. Uh, they are mostly hearing the, the official view of it from, from the Chinese, that, that these two men are supposedly guilty of, of spying, of, of stealing national security information. Uh, how much people believe that, I, I'm afraid, is, is too hard to tell. And what about the deportation issue, uh, James? Because one of the things they said was that he would you know, serve his sentence, be deported. But do we know when that might happen? Yeah, so... Slapping someone with a deportation order along with a prison sentence is somewhat standard practice when it, when it comes to foreigners. Uh, it, it basically means that, that, you know, as a convicted and, and, and imprisoned uh, criminal in China, he won't be able to remain in the country should he, <laughs> for some reason, want to after, after he spent a decade in prison there. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he'll have to serve all 11 years before he comes out. Uh, some experts have suggested that that if there is a political solution to the, the situation in Vancouver, that, that the Chinese could, could uh, you know, curtail the sentence shorter and, and deport him, you know, pretty quickly. But at the same time, we don't know whether that will mean one, two, three years or up to a decade or even the full 11. Right. There's been some grumbling here, James, in Canada that, oh, we should boycott the Beijing Olympics in six months because of issues like this. How has that gone over? Has there been any reaction to that idea in China? Well, China's also facing calls for an Olympic boycott of Beijing 2022 uh, over the issue of, of the ongoing crackdown in Xinjiang against, against Uyghur Muslims and other ethnic minorities over the crackdown here in Hong Kong, over the situation in Tibet. So there's a lot of people calling for a boycott of, of Beijing um, and, and the Chinese authorities have reacted very angrily to that. And, and they've, they've argued that, you know, sports isn't political and, and that these things shouldn't be connected. They, of course, don't accept criticism of, of what people are calling for a boycott over in the first place. Um, and then also kind of in their court, they've got the IOC, which also doesn't really support a boycott and has, has been trying to push, push back against that as well. Right. So can you explain this whole how the court system works there for us, James, then? So we didn't know anything about the trial. Like, how does it work? Are, are there any appeals left for Michael Spaver? Yes, both Michaels are, are, are still in the first stage of, of their process. So, so they, they do have appeals that they could, uh, in theory, lodge. Mr. Spaver will have uh, well two weeks for, from, from this Tuesday to, to lodge an appeal. Um whether he does so, it doesn't necessarily make make a difference to his case. This is a justice system that that has 
uh, about a 99% conviction rate and appeals are almost never successful. So, so, so it, it's, kind of, it's kind of a moot point whether to file an appeal or not. Uh, really, if there's any solution to come in, in his case and in Mr. Kovic's case, that's, that's going to come either from Canada or from Washington. How open is the process? Can people sit in on these trials? Can they hear what the evidence is? No. Uh, the, the, both trials against them were held completely behind closed doors. Even, even diplomats were, were barred for, from the trial itself. Uh, Dominic Barton, the, the Canadian ambassador, uh, he was able to go and, and, and listen to some of the, the verdicts being handed down this week. But we still don't know, and, and the Canadian authorities also don't know, a lot of what the evidence against the, the, these two, two men is. Um, it, it's all behind closed doors. The Chinese say that's because it, it involves spying on national secrets. But, you know, it's easy to see how you could, could talk about secrets without actually giving them away and indicate what, what necessarily they're accused of doing. But the Chinese have not, have not done that. Right. Has Meng Wanzhou's name come up at all? And the extradition hearing that's going on here in Vancouver, has that come up at all in this? The Chinese do claim that these cases aren't, aren't linked. Uh, that is somewhat hard to believe given the timing of, of everything and the fact that movements in all of the cases have consistently mirrored each other. When, when something's happening in the Meng case, we tend to get some kind of movement uh, in China with the two Michaels. Uh, uh, China still argues that, that, that Meng's detention is also political and, and, and arbitrary, and, it, and it's urged Ottawa to release her. Uh, we saw recently a meeting between a Chinese top official and the deputy U.S. Secretary of State, uh, in which they also urged Washington to drop the case against Meng Wanzhou as well. So, so, so you know, they're pretty consistent on, on saying that she should just be released and this case should go away. And the indication implicitly, if not explicitly, is that were that to happen, that Mr. Coverig and Mr. Spavel might be on a plane home fairly soon. Oh, boy. All right, James, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me. We're still waiting to find out what the situation is with the sentence for Michael Kovrig, one of the other Canadians that is being held in detention in China and has been for the last three years. Michael Spaver earlier this week received a sentence of 11 years for espionage. So what happens now? There's still, you know, the war of words between the two countries here in Vancouver. You've got the ongoing extradition proceedings for Meng Wanzhou. They're entering a critical phase. For more on all of this, we're joined by Ian Young, South China. China Morning Post reporter. Ian, thanks for being back with us. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So we keep saying, okay, critical phase for this Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing. What is going on? Uh, yeah, we uh, really are at the pointy end of the proceedings. Uh, we've got the hearings that last until the end of next week, and that's it. Well, um, you know, Justice Heather Holmes then decides whether or not to recommend that Meng Wanzhou uh, should be uh, sent to the United States, and then it goes to the minister for a final uh, decision on whether to actually surrender her. So, uh, yeah, we really are at the, uh, the critical end of uh, this very, very, very long process. Do you think that's why we're suddenly getting all this information about the Canadians who are detained in China? I think it's a reasonable bet. I mean, the, the Chinese have, have maintained all along that uh, this is a separate issue. Uh, but, I mean, I, 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 think, I don't think it's coincidental that we've had this latest batch of hearings, which only started last week, uh, and it's coincided with all this news about, um, about poor Michael Spavor in China.
You, when we've talked in the past, we've talked about some of the arguments that Meng Wanzhou's lawyers have been making in court, and that's been continuing, right? Like they, I think recently, what did they say that they felt this was like a vendetta by Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean that's one of the arguments that Meng Wanzhou has suffered an abuse of process, and uh, there's, there's four prongs to this argument, and that is one of them uh, that this process was so deeply politicised that the, the extradition case against Meng Wanzhou should be stayed, basically that it should be thrown out before a decision on committal, uh, and that she should be allowed to go home. So, yeah, that's one of their four uh, abusive process arguments. And what has been your assessment of how things are going in that? Yeah, I think it'd be a pretty brave person who, who <laughs> tried to predict what Heather Holmes was going to decide. But, I mean, they're, they're certainly voluminous. I mean, that's what I can say about the arguments. I mean, these arguments have been going on for the better part of a thousand days now. Um, so so they've, they've, they've got no shortage of arguments at their disposal. Let's put it that way for, for, for Meng Wanzhou's side. Right. Okay. But there's still so much unknown here, isn't there, Ian? Like, it just feels like nothing has really been advanced or even agreed upon in the last three years. Of course. You know, I mean, the thing is, though, this is a very long process and it is in Meng Wanzhou's interest for it to be as long as possible because um, come what may, she doesn't want to go to the United States. Um, and it could well be that part of the decision in fighting this tooth and nail is to prolong the process so long that the political environment might change. I mean, we've been at this for nearly three years now, so who knows where we'd be in another three years if, for instance, uh, this case is appealed and then appealed again all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. We could be here for years. Right. Do you think maybe they thought Joe Biden was going to be different and it doesn't, towards China, it doesn't seem like Joe Biden has been that different? It could be, but we did have that report at the end of last year, which came out in the Wall Street Journal, suggesting that there might be a deferred prosecution agreement. And what that basically would be is, um, in effect, a plea deal that would allow Meng Wanzhou to return home uh, in exchange for some sort of uh, uh, some sort of some sort of guilty plea. Now we haven't heard anything uh, from that um, in the courthouse here in Canada, uh, which is not surprising. That's not really within their remit. But who knows what's going on on the sidelines? It could well be that the Americans are looking for a way to Canada, for Canada to get out of this uh, that, that kind of saves face for both Canada and, the, and, and China. Right. Uh, what do you think about the whole Olympics thing too, Ian, with this question? How important is it for China to be able to you know, put these Olympics on in six months without having all of these issues hanging over their head? Or do they care at all? I think they care. I think that the, the Olympics are a pre certainly a prestige event, but we haven't seen any scaling back of language. Let's put it that way. I mean, overnight we had um, the foreign ministry uh, deeply deriding uh, Justin Trudeau's comments on on the Spavor, uh verdict and sentencing. You know, calling calling Canada arrogant. Um, you know, and interfering in, in Chinese sovereignty for for talking about Michael Spavor's, uh sentencing, saying you know China is a rule of law mind your own business effectively. So we haven't seen it dialing back. Um, but, you know, the Olympics are a prestige event. I don't see that China is the sort of place that would bow to pressure over a sporting event on such um, on right. such a important and long-running issue, though. Did they even care, though, that like two dozen diplomats stood with Canada outside the courtroom this week? Uh, not Probably not. Not really. I mean, I think that the, the comments from the foreign ministry certainly came after that. You know, I mean, I don't think that the Chinese foreign ministry looks, um, it, it doesn't particularly care about winning a, a popularity poll among Western nations. You know, I, I don't think that's that's what China's business is at this stage. Uh, I think that it wants Meng Wanzhou home um, by hook or by crook. 
Right. So by any means possible, whatever they have to bend, whatever they have to force, that's what they're trying to make happen. Well, yeah, but that's also within the context of the Chinese justice system. You know, I mean, for instance, with Spavor and Kovrig, I don't think that too many people, regardless of where you stand on the issue, think that uh, they are going home anytime soon if it is not within the, the, the wishes of the Chinese government. Now, we have a separation of powers here in Canada. I don't think China really does. I don't think that people think that there is the same equivalent rule of law and separation of powers in China. So, you know, China does have a lot of weapons at its disposal uh, if it wants to put pressure on Canada and has. For a thousand days, it's been putting pressure on us. It certainly has, and it's not ending anytime soon. Ian, thank you. No worries. Thank you, Simi. Ian Young with the South China Morning Post talking about the Canadians and Chinese detention. And despite the pressure, despite everything, we are no closer to having a resolution for, you know, the two Michaels in China, nor are we any closer to figuring out what is going on in the relationship and just... Overall, in this situation, we expect Michael Kovrig to get his sentence in the next couple of days. We will, of course, be hearing more about it. We'll keep you posted. This is Mornings with Simi. We're a little bit late to what they're doing in the United States, but it's clear that for a lot of things that we are going to want to do in the months ahead, you're going to need to prove that you were vaccinated. I mean, take a look at what the Winnipeg Jets announced the other day, that if you want to go to a game and they're going to welcome fans back to their games to get in the stands, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. Now, it's the same case if you want to travel post-pandemic. You're going to need that so-called vaccine passport. Word out of Ottawa yesterday is they are working on one for Canadians that will likely be usable this fall. So how is this going to impact travel? Well, joining us now is Richard Curlin, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer. Richard, thank you for being with us. Sure. So has this been an issue at the border with Americans coming up here now? Because they also have to show that they are vaccinated. Absolutely. And I've had to deal firsthand on site with these uh, tragedy cases. Uh, so it's endemic, uh, and uh, there is a lack of uniform and consistent application of rules. The rules change literally daily, and uh, because the goalposts keep getting moved, how are people to prepare properly uh, to obey? It, it's a mess. So what have you seen then when you say you're being called in firsthand? What's going on? Okay, just this weekend, uh, I was at Montreal Airport, uh, and uh, a childhood friend, so we've known each other literally 55 years, is coming up from the States, thought he'd had everything under control, but his flight was delayed. And uh, the 72-hour limit was breached. Even though he was fully vaccinated, he's uh, dealing with not CBSA, but health authorities, as an immigration lawyer and originally from Montreal, uh, I have a strong relationship with CBSA uh, at that airport. They couldn't help me. It was the health people. And here's the thing. <laughs> he played the visually impaired card, because he is. Uh, and uh, even though he had to sleep in the airport on his way to Montreal because of flight cancellations, they were not going to let him in. They said, good news for you. We're not going to fine you. We're just going to make you quarantine two weeks. He burst into tears. Oh, my goodness. And uh, because of that, they, they, they just uh, waved him through to <laughs> at the airport. They have a secondary COVID testing site where they just allowed a second COVID test, and he was on his way. 
Well, if they can do that, why aren't they doing that at every airport, every land border for people who run afoul and and, uh, have COVID tests? But for whatever reason, these little technicalities are breached. And there's a second case right here in Vancouver, uh, which is astonishing. Person comes from Hawaii, arrives at YVR, and uh, the people in Hawaii, he had done his test as required, didn't send the authentication. When he called, he says, we're on island time, you'll get it when you get it. That does sound like Now, here's the thing. One officer tells him, go fly to Los Angeles, do a test there, and come back with your results, which he did. And then he told the story to a second officer at YVR who said, you didn't have to do that. We have a secondary COVID testing site right here. So, yeah, why? I don't understand that. Like, most yeah. airports now do have a testing site right on, on site there. Exactly. Look, this is risk management. Risk management. So what's the problem with you land, you go to customs, COVID check, sir, ma'am, did you have a COVID test uh, as required or, or uh, if uh, you need one, pay $100, go down this corridor and get a COVID test. And then uh, monitor it for eight days, and and that's it. Why are they requiring the payment of thousands and thousands of dollars when it's ultra simple to walk down a corridor and get a shot in the arm? But do you think, Richard, that is that going to change then when we do implement this vaccine passport? Like, will we still be needing to do both of these things? Well, that's that's the thing. You know, government will grow uh, the more oxygen you feed it. And, and I just don't see why, uh, unless someone knows that there's another pandemic uh, lurking somewhere, I don't see why we need to prepare an entire circus tent needlessly. Uh, this uh, international uh, vaccine documentation is a good thing, but look what you're going to be giving up. Uh, there's a heck of a lot of privacy issues. There's going to be the centralization of your health data. We, we have not done that before in Canada. We have silos, provincial silos of personal medical information. Uh, and f- for what purpose? Once we've licked this COVID and, and wrestled it to the ground, uh, are we installing a permanent global health monitoring system? Show me the business case. Show me the evidence. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's just another layer of um, verification uh, of individuals. Uh, the medical experts must chime in, not government bureaucrats, medical experts who will invo- inform, advise the population, yes, we need this. Is it a good idea? Yeah. Uh, should there be a system like this that's voluntary? Yeah. Uh, and I don't think, Richard, people, no. I don't think Canadians want to have people arrive here without knowing that they're vaccinated. We don't want to take the chance. We don't want to make it voluntary. We, if you're we right, want Jimmy. it. Absolutely right. And which is why our immigration system includes medical verifications if you want to come here to visit, study, work, immigrate. We already have that layer of protection. Uh, and uh, folks from around the world who need visas uh, to come to Canada, which are the high-risk areas for pandemics, by the way, uh, are, are, are covered. This is superfluous. It, it, uh, it's a great idea to protect Canadian public, but to what degree? What exactly is the risk? 
For example, but if you tell somebody, somebody, Richard, if you tell somebody yeah. you can't go to Hawaii unless you do this, guess what? People will line up to do it because they want yeah. the ability to go where they want to go. And I agree with that. If uh, the politicians decide, you know what, we've seen the evidence, we've, we've looked at risk management, this is the appropriate structure, I'm in. I'm for it. For it. Uh, but that hasn't been done yet. Uh, and uh, it, it can't be a one-year plan. This has got to be like a five-year, a ten-year plan. Uh, the principle that you can't travel unless you show you've been vaccinated is a good one. I approve. Uh, but you, you still have to make out your business case. For the time being, uh, what has been occurring is strategic shutdowns of flows into Canada from high-risk areas. And had we done that with Europe at the very beginning, uh, Canada would not have suffered as much in Ontario and Quebec. But guess what? Politics. So in yeah, but Australia, Australia did that, and they're still suffering. Everyone's going to still suffer. Uh, uh, but is this a one-time deal, or will we be getting these again? That's the core question. Mm-hmm. If we're going to get these again, we've got to set up that protective shield. Right. Richard? And that's it. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. A pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye. That's Richard Curlin, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer, talking about the concerns that he has with a vaccine passport system, privacy concerns, he brought those up. You know, the thing is, we're going to analyze this and talk about it and debate the whole privacy issue when it comes to the vaccine passport. But I always tend to think of like social media, right? People sign over all of their social media stuff to companies without even reading the terms of service on what you're signing up for. And you have no problem to allow your phone or Facebook or whoever it is to track every single thing that you do, everything that you look at on the internet. And yet we're going to analyze this thing, which is why I feel like in the end, most people won't have a problem with it because you know what? You want to go somewhere and they tell you this is required. People are going to say, fine, I just really want to go to that place. Here, here's my vaccine passport. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's time for our weekly check-in with Mark Dos Santos, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I am good. How are you? How's the team doing? The team's doing well. We're a little bit fed up of traveling, but it's part of our, of our year, I think. Um, we're leaving again today to San Jose. Uh, for two away games, one in San Jose and the other one in Austin. You're right. That does sound very busy. So I guess you haven't had a chance to watch Ted Lasso, have you? No, but it's in my head, man. (laughs) (laughs) You changed the the part of my life. (laughs) Well, that show changed a lot of people's lives, so maybe maybe it will help out there. (laughs) I'm probably going to have maybe a little bit of time during this trip. Well, how is the team doing, though? I know that they're, they've been busy, some of the players, because some of the players were also playing in the Gold Cup, weren't they? Yes, but they're back. Uh, they were back already with the team uh, in, the, in the game in L.A. Uh, it was good to have Max and Kava back. Unfortunately, Lucas got a, an injury that's going to keep him out for maybe 
if everything goes well for five weeks. Um, but we have to be to be patient with situations like that. And uh, it's just good to be back training home and have uh, even the new signing, Ryan Gold, getting incorporated with the team. Yeah, tell us more about Ryan and, and what he's going to add to the team. Look, Ryan is... Uh, the question mark is always about adaptation into a new league, uh, but he played some minutes against the Galaxy and he, he brought a lot of spark in those 20 minutes he was in. It's a player with great technical ability, sees the game uh, in the offensive third very well, has a good intensity in his game without the ball, so speaks English, uh, he speaks Portuguese, he, he gets along with everybody in the locker room. Um, it's a great signing for the club, that's for sure. Good. Okay, so yeah, you, you need that for these uh, next couple of games here. So did you get a chance to watch any of the soccer at the Olympics? I just watched, to be honest, the penalty shootout in the final between uh, Canada and Sweden. That's the only part I watched. But you can understand how incredibly stressful that was. It was for them more oh than for God. us, for sure. But right. uh, especially for the goalkeeper and the players that were taking the shots. But it's an incredible achievement for, for the country. And uh, it's a lot of work, I think, has been done in the last years uh, with the program. So it's just incredible to see the growth of uh, the game and, uh, and getting a gold medal in soccer was is something that maybe... 20, 30 years ago, people would never imagine that. It's such a huge part of soccer, though, isn't it, Mark, to play internationally, to play for your home team, for your home country on an international level? It's the biggest, uh, it's the biggest step in anybody's career. It's the dream of, of every kid when he watches a World Cup, um, regardless of the nationality. Some people... Uh, are born in Norway and they dream to to play for Norway or Brazil or Argentina but for sure that that's the biggest step and uh, the biggest achievement a dream for anybody that starts as a young kid playing soccer that is so true well listen best of luck on this road trip and hope it works out well for you guys and we'll chat with you soon Thank you very much, Jimmy. Nice speaking to you. That is Mark Bye -bye. Del Santos, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They are on a bit of a road trip now. Two games coming up for them. And, of course, you'll hear those games on AM 730, our sister station. And uh, we're going to keep checking in with Mark Dos Santos, right? So join us for those chats. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, the pandemic has been tough on so many organizations, including the Vancouver Aquarium. It's hard to look after everyone in their care when there's no revenue coming in. Well, hopefully that's going to start changing on Monday when the aquarium once again opens its doors. And for more on that whole process, Clint Wright joins us now, the executive director of the Vancouver Aquarium. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning, Simi. You must be very excited. Oh, that's uh, yeah, that's an understatement. That's for sure. There's a real buzz around the aquarium. There's there's a lot of people in uh, already just getting the aquarium ready for, for Monday. So it's, uh, yeah, very, very excited. Right. I know that you had been through a bit of a hiring process. I think you were hiring like 100 people over the last month or so. How did that go? Uh, very well, actually. Su uh, surprisingly well, because we'd heard that um, 
other aquariums throughout North America, zoos, other attractions. We're having trouble finding people, but uh, we've been very lucky. People seem to want to come to the aquarium want to, and, and want to work with us, so, which is fantastic. So uh, we had a hiring um, a fair a couple of weeks ago. We were hoping to get 100 people. Uh, I think on those two, uh, two days, we got about 85 uh, offers out to people, and we've filled all the other positions. So we're pretty much fully staffed now, So um, including great. some people who worked with us before. So that's, it's been very good. You know, you're lucky because we're not hearing that from a lot of other businesses, right? <laughs> that's right. I guess, I guess being in Stanley Park, being around the animals, uh, it's just an amazing place to be. It is. Okay, so then is it completely back to normal then starting Monday, Clint? What's going to happen? Well, as close as we can get it. Of course, uh, we're not completely out of, uh, out of the COVID uh, situation. So there'll be some, uh, obviously, we're doing extra cleanings. Uh, we're asking people that are, that are not fully vaccinated to, and, and over 12 to, to, to please wear a mask when you come. All the staff will be wearing masks. Um, but we've opened up all the galleries. So all the animals, all the displays, um, uh, are open. Um, uh, last year, we were able to open for a couple of months, but had to close the downstairs galleries. People couldn't get to see the frogs, couldn't see the sea lions underwater. So that's all opened up um, now. It will not be single uh, one-way flow. Um, so people will be able to meander around. Uh, but it won't be the big shows. So they'll be just smaller because we don't want to have people congregate in big groups. So there'll be smaller uh, presentations throughout the building all day long. Okay, so what, how are things right now with the aquarium then, Clint? Because I know there, you know there were a lot of financial pressures. Uh, you had to keep everybody going. You had to keep feeding everybody, right? And th- there was no revenue yeah, coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, earlier this year, it was looking pretty bleak. Um, there was a real chance we were going to close. I mean, we'd laid off permanently over 200 people last September. Um, and the board went out looking for, for, for institution, individual, someone with financial, operational uh, capability committed to the highest standards of animal care. And we were super fortunate in finding Hershend, uh, enterprise who came in and provided all of that and, and more. And so they've given us this financial sustainability. Um, the future's looking great. They're, they're covering everything. They've also got talent, resources that we've never had before to be able to pull on in addition to the 64, 65 years of, of, of legacy that we have from the people that worked here. But we've now got additional resources. So things look fantastic. And I think we're in a terrific position moving forward. And when we open those doors, we don't want to close them again. Yes, exactly. So when you put out the plea, you know, when times were tough there, did people respond? Did you feel that relationship with the community? Yeah, they, they really did. And we had some some amazing outpouring from the community. Um, uh, you know, OceanWise was pretty put the situation out we were, we were burning through about a million dollars a month even when we were closed just under anyway so um but it just wasn't enough so despite the you know everybody helping us and to be honest if those people hadn't helped us we may not have got to the point where Hershen could come in and, and basically save us so um yeah everybody's been uh, fantastic uh, the government's been great uh, but everybody's in the same boat, so uh, everybody's looking for, for assistance. So, um, you know, having Hershen come in and uh, provide that uh, has been terrific for everybody. I think it's, it's great for Vancouver. It's great for the people that want to come in and visit the, uh, visit the animals and, and get back. And we all want to get back to, to the way things were before. And it, it'll be a little bit different, but uh, everybody's favorites are still here. The otters, the, you know, the octopus, the penguins. Uh, we've got some new uh, additions that people won't have seen because we've been closed. So... Uh, yeah, I think it's exciting times for everybody. Good. Did you also have time, you know, during the pandemic to rethink anything in terms of the programs that you offer, things that you want to do? 
I think that's still going forward, and we'll be looking for public input as we go forward too. I think it was really, we, we had a skeleton crew. Uh, we had an excellent team. We had the full team looking after the animals. So the animal welfare was never a concern through, this, through the whole COVID thing, but there's nobody else. <laughs> all the people that did the creative, uh, that would be thinking about all of these things, educators, uh, people like that, they just weren't on staff. We had to let them go. So uh, it was difficult times, but we're looking forward now. We've, we've, we've spent a lot of time getting the aquarium back up to this uh, sort of world-class uh, level. A lot of deferred maintenance has been done, um, and obviously building up the staff. Also, the separation from OceanWise, which has is, is taken some time because we, we had shared systems that we needed to separate. Um, and, and we're just in a uh, thinking. Okay, we get we get open uh, one step at a time, and uh, probably this fall we'll start looking at. Okay, what comes next? What does the new aquarium right. look like? One obstacle at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one thing at a time. So then, what can people expect when they show up on Monday? Uh, you know, just run through. Are the hours and everything all still the same? Yeah, it's uh, nine thirty to five thirty. The big difference this year, uh, and uh, like we started last summer, is that all the tickets are online because we we have got to reduce capacity. So it's, you know, again, it's one step at a time. So it'll probably be just under about half capacity. Um, and so you'll get a ticket that's date and time specific, and you'll need to come in at that time. Uh, so you get your reservations online at vanaqua.org. Um and when you come, uh, basically it's the same aquarium. Come to, come to the aquarium, come into Stanley Park. It's very easy to park uh, coming to the aquarium. The bicycle lane doesn't really impact us uh, too much if you head straight up uh, Pipeline Road to the, to the car parking. Of course, you can take the, the 19 bus right into the park, which is, which is great too. And you, you come in and, um, yeah, you, you, you basically it's, it's very easy because you come in, your ticket's scanned, and you're in, and you're, you're off and enjoying your adventure. All right. Well, listen, best of luck, Clint. I know it's been a very hard road to get to this point. So hopefully people will show up and you guys will be back to being busy again. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Clint Wright, the executive director of the Vancouver Aquarium. They reopen on Monday, 930. They are fully staffed. They are ready to go. It's pretty much very similar to your probably previously well-remembered aquarium experience. So you can check that out. But remember, look online first and get your tickets. That's also, I think a lot of attractions are going to start doing that now, just because it's a good way to control capacity in general, right? Even theme parks are doing that. Is it you buy your ticket online uh, the day you're going to go so that they know how many people are going to show up that day. This is Mornings with Simi. Really fascinating new study out of UBC that looked at coral resiliency. And what they found is, and we're going to get this explained to us, but what they found is that coral that was in more polluted or high traffic water may have handled extreme heat events better than the coral found in a more remote or untouched reef. So does that mean that there's some kind of resiliency or adaptation that happens there? Well, joining us now is Sarah Cannon, a PhD student at UBC's Institute for Oceans and Fisheries in the Department of Geography. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This is so fascinating. So would you say that was the big takeaway from this, that there is questions about the resiliency of coral? Yes. Um, so basically what we found was that the sites that had more, that were more highly trafficked and that experienced more pollution had this weedy species of coral. Um, we call, it's called Parietes roost, and it grows in places where these other corals don't do as well. And so we call it a weedy species of coral because it's similar to like a dandelion or some other weed that you might, you might see in your yard um, that can overgrow plants. And that makes it less vulnerable to warming ocean temperatures than other corals in other places. 
And so what that means is that so this this more highly trafficked atoll um, was covered in this weedy coral, which meant that it was less affected by high ocean temperatures than those where there were in other sites where there were less people where they had more sensitive corals. Um, Okay, is that is that a good thing that we found that? It's it's a little bit hard to say. So it's not a good in the sense that it's what it what it tells us is that the ways that we tend to protect that scientists say that we should protect coral reefs is um, by reducing local human impacts. And we tend to assume that that means that these reefs will be less vulnerable to things like climate change as well. And what this tells us is that it's a little bit less complicated or more complicated, excuse me, than that. Right. Um, Does it depend on the type of coral? Yes. So basically because the the sites in, in this place that was highly trafficked had experienced a lot of local pressure, it caused this shift to this weedy coral, which made them less vulnerable to climate change. Whereas the places where there was less people um, are actually more vulnerable to climate change. And so basically that says that we can't just protect reefs by removing local human impacts, um, at least in terms of climate change, like that it, there are reasons why those things are, those reefs are better for people. They mm-hmm. provide more fish. They can protect, um, protect from erosion and sea level rise and those sorts of things. So, but we don't quite understand what the trade-offs will be with this weedy coral yet. Um, so it's hard to say whether or not it's good, a good thing. Right. Can, what, so what can we do with this information then? So basically, I think what it is really telling us is that we desperately need to take action on climate change, um, especially us here in Canada. We have one of the top 10 per capita emissions in the world. And we don't have coral reefs here, but we are starting to experience the um, impacts of climate change with these heat waves and so forth. And so we really have a disproportionate impact here in Canada on par- other parts of the world where people have less of a, people contribute less to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so that gives us a lot of power really to be able to do more to protect coral reefs and other ecosystems by taking action to stop climate change. Right. So that is that the next step of learning? Cause I know like there's some coral that tends to get bleached, right? Hasn't that been a big concern? Yes. So there's been several coral bleaching events in the last um, few decades. There have been three, one in 1998, one in 2010, and then one that lasted from 2014 through 2017. And part of this IPCC report and other other research has predicted that these will continue to happen more often as the climate continues to warm. And so, um, so, yes, so coral bleaching has happened actually more often in Curibus, where the study took place because of where it's located. And so that's actually why we were working there, because these reefs may actually um, look like what we expect other reefs will look like if climate change happens more often. Right. And well, I guess we have to figure out like which coral, like can you, can that coral that is more resilient, can it teach things to the other coral? Yeah, exactly. That's a very good question. And that's um, not the kind of, exactly the type of research that I do, but there are people who are actually looking at the genetics of these types of coral and actually working on them in laboratories to see if there are places or if there are ways that we can make the more sensitive corals become actually uh, more resistant to bleaching so that they're better able to withstand heat stress in the future. This is so fascinating, Sarah, because it doesn't kind of upend what we thought was happening with coral in light of warming oceans. A little bit, yeah. So, so again, like the most common way that scientists will recommend protecting coral reefs on a local scale, and it's just because it's 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 really challenging to tell people in places like in the Pacific Islands and so forth um, that you know we have to take action to stop climate change because again, they don't really have it, that they they excuse me they contribute very little to climate change compared to people in right. Canada who are in the top ten. 
And so the most common way that scientists say to protect corals is to use things like protected areas or to reduce these local pressures, like through fishing and so forth. Um, and there's that if there's this assumption that by doing that, it will also protect them from climate change. And but what we're actually finding is that it could actually backfire and make them more vulnerable to climate change. And so it's a good thing to protect reefs from local stressors like fishing and so forth, because having these healthy reefs is really important. We're protecting them from erosion and also people depend on them for food. But it does raise these questions about how to balance between the local impacts that are stressing coral reefs and then global impacts like climate change, because protecting them from local impacts could actually make them more vulnerable to climate change, if that makes sense. Right. I know. So I'm trying to wrap my head around all of that. Right? Yeah. Because you're right. It makes everything almost more complicated now. It definitely does. Yeah. It raises a lot of challenging questions for sure. So the coral um, that is more resilient, the one that you were talking about there, how does it interact with the other, you know, the other things that are around it in a reef? Does it react? Does it kind of interact the same way that the coral that is more sensitive interacts? That's a really great question. So in most of the places where this, this weedy coral, Parides roots grows, it tends to be almost the only coral, one of the only corals that grows there. Um, so, for example, if you look at like, the community of the reef as a whole and look at all the other species that are there, in the sites that are more trafficked, it's almost 90% um, or more covered in this Parides roots. And so in the more sensitive places, you have a lot more biodiversity. You have different species of corals. Um, and, but what that means is that when bleaching happens, when there is this heat stress, it can wipe, wipe out most of those corals. Um, so we had, what we've ended up with in these two, if you compare the places that were less impacted or had less traffic to the places with more traffic, we, the sites that had less traffic actually ended up with almost no coral at all or with very little coral um, compared to the sites with, with um, the highly trafficked areas where they have like 90% cover of coral and it's all this one single species. Right. How did you get into this, Sarah? Like, what did you find fascinating about it? So that's a great question. I've actually always wanted to study coral reefs. My parents were big scuba divers. Um, and when I was starting to look into graduate school and so forth, I found my advisor, Simon Donner, who's been working in Kiribati in this part of the world for um, over 10 years now. And it's just such a fascinating area to work in because of its location on the equator. And what that means is that these sites experience this warm sea surface temperatures more often than other parts of the world. Uh, because of this location on the equator, warm water pools there during El Nino events. And so um, it was just a great opportunity to get involved and to actually start looking at, it really does give us a glimpse into the future of right. what we might be able to see from other parts of the world as the climate continues to warm. Well, they always tell people to study what you're passionate about, and it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. I feel very lucky. It's true. Okay. So then the next stage of your work, what will that involve? So I think the next thing is really starting to understand what some of these trade-offs are um, with this weedy, this weedy species of corals and these more um, these reefs that are more affected locally. And so, because local people depend on coral reefs for a lot of things. For example, local fisheries are really important for food security. And then Kiribati is also an atoll country, which means that all of this land is made up of atolls. And the elevation is really the max elevation is maybe three meters above sea level across the entire nation. So that makes it especially susceptible to sea level rise. And coral reefs there are really important for protecting from erosion. One, because they break up waves, but they also produce the sand in the sediment that actually builds up these islands. And so that means that they need to be able to grow fast enough to keep up with sea level um, in the future as the sea level is rising to protect the land and the people who live there. 
And so for me, I think the most important thing or the most important next steps will be understanding if these more impacted reefs that have this weedy coral there will be able to continue to provide those services that people depend on. Fascinating stuff. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That is Sarah Cannon, a PhD student at UBC's Institute for Oceans and Fisheries in the Department of Geography, talking about some research done at UBC that she was a part of, where they looked at coral and they found that there's this one particular type of coral. And when it's in polluted and high traffic water, it actually handled extreme heat events better than the coral that was in the more remote kind of untouched reef. And that really upends what, you know, scientists have been thinking. It's like a a whole new area for them to now look into.